Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. This is part two of, in 2040, Massless Time Travel. If you haven't yet, listen to part one to hear the first half of this story. As a recap, Misty is a gregarious native woman who takes a road trip with friends to a powwow. She goes to sleep and wakes up in a man's body in the future. Her higher functioning mind is in his brain. The story picks up where she realizes that, being in the future, she can find out if her tribe has survived for the last 150 years. What happened to my tribe in all that time? Dread mixes with desperate hope. She must find out but she's afraid to look. She has internet access just like in her time. Only it's there for her without a device. Options, messages, and windows appear before her seamlessly. The VR shades in Misty's time did not have augmented reality, but she can easily handle seeing the net and the physical world occupy the same space. She says, Open a search window, the assistant says. I don't understand. Misty says, I want to find out about indigenous tribes. The assistant says, Can you be more specific? Many windows appear before her, offering information mostly not about what happened to her tribe, but soon she finds an account that tells her exactly what happened. There it is right before her. She can still see the screen as his eyes flood with tears. She lifts his hands to his face, and she cries out such a strange, aching groan of triumph. We are alive! The screen stays in the center of her vision as she stands. We are alive! She raises and shakes his arms. Her tribe is one of a couple of hundred city-states in the land that used to be America. Her people are in a walled-off metropolis. They remain prosperous to this day. The city is enclosed, half underground and behind walls. As she settles down, she watches real-time footage and can virtually move through its public spaces. The roads are inside. Through windows so thick they warp light, she sees torrents of rain hit the outer walls. The wind throws all kinds of objects. The people inside ride down corridors in narrow cars. They gather in clusters outside shops. She can't recognize the plants that grow everywhere. Some things may be plants or machines, she can't know for sure. Some rooms are like forests indoors. Birds fly under ceilings high above. Animals, some resembling dogs and some reminiscent of cats, wander at their leisure. Furnishings and clothing light up with a calming glow. Though the clothing has changed, she can still recognize fashion elements of her tribe. At points she weeps. Sometimes she giggles, forgetting that the sounds she makes are made with a man's vocal cords. His heart speeds up at the thought of living in such conditions. How did my tribe survive? It's obviously a changed planet. She asks out loud. Can I see a history of this city-state? A never-ending list of recommendations appears. 
The earliest documentary she finds starts in 2080. But what happened before that time? Her searches come up with little. Some historic events thrill her, some fill her with triumph, and some horrify her. So many have died. The assistant announces. I will make your lunch unless you want to eat out. Misty snaps. I'll let you know if I want to eat. At two o'clock she finally does eat. Using his small male hands makes it hard to focus on the food. At first, the food tastes utterly strange, but soon she finds herself liking it. She may even prefer it to food from 2040. I guess they had a few more centuries to make things taste better. What happened to me? Assistant, is there anything about Misty Josiah, born in 2020? Another vast list appears before her. She is now up and pacing. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. She scrolls down the list. Misty Josiah in her own words, the precedence of Misty Josiah, winners of the Misty Josiah Award. The list goes on and on. Could this all really be about me? Is this a joke? Blinking at the early years of Misty Josiah brings up the pre-2080 history she'd been looking for. Each chapter is titled with a year, and she scrolls to 2041. The assistant asks, This is text only. Would you like me to read this to you with pictures? Misty says, Sure. It takes 20 to 40 minutes to listen to each year, 2041. 2048. 2053. Her nation made it in part because they were already set up to handle calamity. It made it because it already knew it could not depend on America. Each battle fought for sovereignty makes her grind his teeth. And there was Misty Josiah calling all the shots, a Misty she never was, a Misty she didn't get the chance to be. Her own history reads a bit sensationally. One day she walks out of her job and wanders into the wilderness to go on a vision quest. She never did that. She never had any intention of doing anything like that. Misty of 2040 lived on to make history. But if she continued to live back then, who is the she controlling her when my mind is here in 2194? She finds one video posted in 2082. A wrinkled blonde woman with a moon tattoo on one cheek and a sun tattoo on the other cheek leans into the camera and says, Misty Josiah is a mind displaced and I have proof. Misty clicks off the video. A chill runs down his spine. I don't know that woman. That's so weird. It's after midnight. I'd like some food now. She tries to eat, but the high level of excitement has left her cranky. She isn't used to being in a middle-aged body, even one as healthy as his. Leaving the food half-eaten, she walks to the bed and sits on the edge. His head grows heavy, and she falls asleep, falling to the side. The next morning, just before she opens her eyes, she thinks, let me be back in my body. But here is the spacious, super clean apartment of the future. Here is the no-breast, caved-in but body she inhabited yesterday. The natural voice asks her, Will you be going to work today? Misty says, No, I'm not feeling myself. The assistant says, Okay, I will let them know. Do you want something to make yourself feel better? Misty says, No. How do I get back? Can I go back? 
Assistant, is there anyone I can contact that could advise me on waking up in someone else's body? The assistant says, that query calls up a lot of flagged links. Misty says, show me. Five links appear. She blinks at, are you from the past or the future? A sky blue screen appears and she hears a repeating chime. What is this? A live feed of a woman appears. Hello? Misty pauses. Um, I clicked on your link. The woman, with an ethnicity Misty can't place, brightens up. Oh yes, are you a time traveler? Misty says, I may be. The woman has bushy eyebrows that give her a mystique and she smiles effortlessly. Are you female? Misty asks with a man's voice. Yes, how did you know? The woman says, You're the body you're in a male. Who are you? Misty says, Do you mean who is he? The woman says, Is this your first time? Who were you before? What year did you come from? I'm Misty Josiah and I'm from 2040. The woman looks dubiously at her. Misty says, Did I say something wrong? The woman says, No, it's just that you're only the second person to answer my ad and the last one said she was President Obama. Misty says, Maybe she was. The woman says, She also claimed she reincarnated and was Cleopatra in a past life. Misty says, Maybe she was. The woman says, Well, a common pathology people suffer from is believing they are a famous person from another time. Misty says, I was never a famous person. I Misty before she became famous. I listened to her history yesterday, and I never did those things she's famous for. The woman says, Well, after further discussion, the woman, Robbie Siskel, offers to meet with Misty in a public space. Misty is not sure if that's a good idea, but what other options does she have at this point? Robbie sends her navigation. Misty opens the front door, or she tries to open the front door. Apartment, let me out. The assistant says, Your elevator is on the way. The door opens on its own to an elevator with a bench. Please take a seat. She steps inside, sits, and drops. The direction changes and G1 forces pull her left, back, and forward, and then she drops again. She scowls and hangs on as she slides around on the seat. His AR gives her a see-through view of public spaces she passes. She falls past people walking through garden mazes and boarding tube cars. The door opens to an immense, long interior with a cathedral-like ceiling. She steps out hearing voices, real voices. Fine grass covers the floor. She can't see the end of this gigantic hall. The air feels warmer and smells faintly like a farm. Each side has storefronts or entrances, some small like the one she came out of. Everything looks old, cared for, and personalized. Someone must have taken a lot of time putting mosaic on a bird bath a few feet from her. At some point or another, someone took extra care to redo a facade, and this was done to most of the facades. Extremely manicured plants accentuate the architecture. Vines with small leaves cover columns. Trees hold perfect spheres of green foliage up to the skylights. People step onto a track that runs down the middle and are whisked along down the hall. Children play on a gymnasium. An adult stands like a statue overlooking them. 
People walk along balconies on higher floors. Everyone is smaller than she is used to. They are shorter and though some look rounder than others, no one is fat. 2040 Misty is 6 feet 2 and this body she is in now is maybe 5 feet tall, and the other men she sees seem to be around that height. The women average 4 feet 6. A girl points at Misty and laughs. The man is wearing pajamas. Misty blushes, glad she is already walking away. Everyone's clothes look papery. Misty wears the same kind of clothes and they feel softer than they appear. I hope Robbie can help me. I miss home. Fifteen minutes later, she approaches Lunar Lounge. Because of the name, she expects to see moons and stars decorating the interior. Instead, she finds astronaut helmets hanging above tables, space-blasted rovers bringing drinks to customers, and industrial-style 3D-printed tables and chairs. It doesn't take a college degree for her to appreciate that the decor was used on the moon at some time. People congregate at tables but also sit at counters. Misty can't help but smile. A message from Robbie reads, I'm near the back on the right side. In the back, Robbie stares at her and holds up a hand. Misty walks toward the back, between tables and holograms. A hologram ahead shows a woman talking. Police have taken him into custody. Further investigation will be conducted before his identity is made public. At 3.40 a.m. the bodies of two children were found in barrels of salt in the unemployed zone. The UZ Mafia claims the perpetrator is a citizen. 3D renderings of the children appear. The man's body that Misty is using responds with recognition. The man's brain feeds her a flurry of images of the children being murdered. Misty stops and her eyes grow wide. Vivid visuals of a child holding up her arms to protect herself dominate Misty's mind and she can't make it stop. She steps toward the news report. Already it's moved on, talking about a series of live concerts. People turn to look at her. What is going on? The man's brain remembers murders of children. Misty backs up as if the memories are in front of her. Panicking, she can't stand still. In the back, Robbie watches her, dropping her arm. This is terrible. Who am I inside of? I can't meet with that woman right now. Misty rushes out of the lounge. Messages from Robbie pop up. Is everything okay? What just happened? Misty half walks, half runs. She finds a bench to sit on behind an ancient tree. She remembers tormenting and killing the children in the news, but they aren't her memories. They come from this guy's brain. She inwardly asks the man's brain, How many children have you killed? It recalls for her dozens of victims over many years. The children wear dingy clothes and the locations and the memories look like decrepit abandoned interiors. She brings his fist up and strikes his face. Her AI assistant says, You are mentally unstable. Would you like assistance? Misty says, No. As she realizes her mind is seated in the brain of a killer, the brain realizes that there is an outside force who is judging it to its core. The body wants to protect itself and reacts violently causing a massive headache and dialing up fear to full blast. It overrides Misty's movement control and jerks the head and arms as she tries to hold it still. The body's immune system goes into full alert, 
and the skin burns with an itching sensation. Cramps force Misty to fold at the waist. She wrings his hands, crosses his arms, droops his head, and shakes on the bench. She starts tearing his hair. She starts scratching at his skin and there's blood. It's bleeding. Two non-human humanids walk toward her. Misty stands and walks away, shaking fists and whipping his head around. She holds her breath and pictures calming scenes, a pasture in summer, mountains during a sunset, and a goat chewing on grass. With images, she pushes the words out. After walking for a while, the agitated state dies down. She inwardly asks, What did you do before killing a child? He went outside the city to wreck zones. The body likes recalling and feeds her memories of braving windy streets at the foot of towering structures and watching strangers hour after hour. She returns to his apartment and finds the drawer containing the evidence. His mementos are all pathetic in the most tragic way possible. A girl's plastic hair clip is grimy. A dirty torn piece of clothing has a star on it. Part of a shoelace has smiley faces on it. She pulls the drawer out and throws it across the room. With his fist, she strikes the wall then examines how she has broken some of the bones. The pain is intense, but it isn't her pain. The door opens and two people, who look human but also purposefully not human, enter. One says, Sir, you are suffering. We can help. Misty cries. He did it. One not human is beside her. She feels a pinch. She wakes in a bed in a small room so narrow it makes her feel like she's at the end of a hall. Hello? The assistant says. You have been treated. Would you like to return to your home? She feels detached from everything in a way she never has experienced before. His assistant says. Your clothes are by the bed. You can get dressed. The bones in his hand aren't broken anymore. She follows the AI prompts, getting dressed, and leaving the medical facility. But after entering one of the colossal plazas, she takes a left instead of a right. The assistant does not protest and discontinues its directions. Beads of sweat break out on his forehead. If I do this, I do it to myself too. But if I try to live as him, I let him get away. And those memories are still there. Sooner or later I won't be able to stand being in here anymore. It seems absurd that his heart rate is not increasing. It's like she's watching a car wreck but feels perfectly calm. The medic must have shot him up with something to keep him calm. All the more reason to do this now. She says aloud. Give me directions to the police. The assistant says. You will be assisted momentarily. A synthetic or robot or whatever it is. Non-human approaches her through the streams of pedestrians. She stops as it stops before her. It asks, Sir, can I help you? Misty says, I'd like to turn myself in. I'm responsible for the murder of the two children that has been in the news. It says, That crime is outside of the city. We don't have jurisdiction. Misty says, Where do I turn myself in? It says, I'm reviewing your recent health records. Most likely you are suffering a temporary breakdown. Misty says, I can prove it. I can provide information that only the killer would know. It says, 
You are talking about murders that happened in a lawless region. Misty says. There's no law enforcement in the rec zones? It says. Mafias handles most disputes outside the city. Misty says. Can I leave the city? It says. Normally yes, but in your present state you will not be allowed. Misty says. Those people out there can't come in and now you won't let me out. It says. We will protect you from your current mental state. Misty says. Can I declare myself not a resident of this city anymore? It says. As long as you have a job, you are a citizen of better foods. Misty walks away. Thank you for your help. When she tries calling her work and quitting, her AI supervisor tells her nearly word for word exactly what the officer said. She wanders around without directions until she finds one of the stations that lead out of the city. By now she is used to strangers gawking at her. Two not-humans step up behind her. This time she wakes up in a recovery bed to find bands around his wrists and ankles keeping her pinned down. She scoots to the head of the bed and bangs his head against the wall until she loses consciousness, waking again without injury. She does not know how many weeks it takes, but some unknown decider decides that Ward El Holdreth is no longer fit for work. A not-human tells him to get dressed and escorts him from the recovery center. The not-human carries Wardell's belongings in a bag big enough to hold what was considered one bag of groceries a century ago. Misty is not relieved. She might feel that she succeeded if she were not so scared of what may happen next. Her body or not, she still feels like she's stumbling along a cliffside in the dark. Whatever they were giving her wears off as she is escorted to the exit. The cramping, erratic movements, and heightened fear return. As citizens wearing crisp, clean clothes cross from inside the city into the steamy heat of a rec zone, the officer hands her Wardell's belongings. She walks out feeling the gust of cooler, cleaner air push behind her. The difference is immediate. The ground becomes muddy and irregular. Gusts of hot air swoop down, nearly knocking her down. The unemployed remind her of LA's homeless except everyone is on the move. In the city, people stared but out here no one notices him. I must do this. I'm going to do this. She sets his bag down and looks through his worldly possessions. She digs out the sad mementos, pockets them, and leaves the rest. Even though his brain tells her many of his possessions are worth a lot. She asks aloud, Hello, are you still there? The dispassionate voice responds. Do you have a question? Misty says, I wasn't sure if you'd still be here. How do I talk to the mafia? Her assistant gives her directions. On the way, people start shouting. Hey! That's the citizen in the news. It's him. He's the one. She begins to huff and puff, feeling faint. Feet are running. She's knocked down as smelly bodies grab her from behind. His face hits the stony ground. People punch her as they drag her through the streets. They sit her on a chair in the middle of a warehouse space and leave her. The angry noises die away. She tries to lift his hands, but they are tied at her sides. She blinks, clearing his eyes of the blood and tears. She sees five people standing in the room, keeping their distance from her and each other. With rugged faces, they express despair and the fury each holds at bay. 
the woman in overall says. Is it true what the news says? Misty pulls on her restraints, reaching in his pockets, and pulling out his mementos. They drop to the floor. These belong to the children. She struggles to call to mind his horrible memories only long enough to give incriminating details. The one before he, I mean I, I followed him and his family for several hours. His family digs through garbage in Sutter Tunnel. His body jerks and jumps. His eyes won't stay focused. The cramping hurts worse of all and sometimes all she can do is groan in agony. His body is all jacked up to move and she strains to keep him in the chair. She has never exerted so much effort. Much longer and she won't be able to keep it up. But if he does go berserk, at least all these goons won't let him go. The confession is live-streamed. The angry voices outside grow louder and louder. Stony thuds hit the outer walls. Even the people in charge glance at the windows and doors with concern. One of the men is asking her something. Why'd you have to do it in real life? Misty says. What? The man says. Why didn't you just do it on a game or simulation? Misty says. I don't know. I don't know why I'm sorry. Another says. Go on. What did you do with the body? Misty says. I hid it behind a shipping container and, and. I think I'm going to. For a fraction of a second, all the pain leaves. Misty loses consciousness. In that state between wake and sleep, she walks through her grandma's house. Her grandma calls to her. Misty, Misty, where'd you go? She sits up. The print on fabric she bought at Goodwill and Spoken hangs on the wall. She holds her hands, her hands, in front of her. Jumping out of bed she shouts. I'm back. Laundry covers the floor. Her dog, Relaxer, lies on the bed looking up at her, tail thumping. She doesn't feel well, and with a couple of hours before work, she calls in sick. Her boss asks. It's been several days. Don't you think you should see a doctor? Misty says. Maybe. She calls Janine. What happened? Did anything happen at the powwow? Janine says. What do you mean? You were quiet, is that what you mean? You're being so strange. Why haven't you returned my calls? Misty says. It's okay. I'll call you back in a little bit, okay? Janine says. Okay. Feel better. She walks through the mobile home to the kitchen to make tea. The typewriter her father gave her sits on the kitchen table. There are typed pages next to the typewriter. She picks them up and reads. I tried to use your phone, but I gave up. I found this typewriter in your closet. I don't know how to type so it took me some time to write these letters, but I don't have a whole lot else to do. I feel like I'm crawling, trying to use this pre-smart link technology. Anyway, I'm sorry for any mess I might have left before you come back. I tried to keep out of your stuff. I know that sounds absurd considering I'm using your body but I've heard of mine displaced who ruined their hosts lives and I want you to know, I did my best to leave your life as I found it. From your memories, you seem like you are considerate of others so I'm sure you're like me and didn't hurt the person you inhabited. I ate your food, not that I had a choice. My kind of food is not available, but I didn't want to throw you into poor health in any way.
I left your finances alone. I woke in your world right before you and your friends went to F Pow Wow. I was disoriented of course and tried to play along. Your friends began asking if I was okay, so I told them not to worry. I had something on my mind and could tell them more about it in a few days. Meanwhile, I was very excited about actually being a mind displaced. I never dreamed it would happen to me, but that's another story. When we got back, I called in sick to your work each day. I took care of your dog as your memories helped me understand how to do. I wish I could give you financial advice, but this is the distant past to me. I barely know anything about your time. Misty takes the first page off the top and lays it on the table. She vaguely remembers the last few days in her body, but the memories are made by another mind. She starts the next page. Okay, so I'm 17, a male of course, and from 2219 and live in an O'Neill. That's a giant cylinder in space. I'm in the same orbit as Earth, but of course, I never visited. I'm sorry but it's so beautiful here. I've gone on some long walks. I've walked up around the mountain you can see from your bedroom window. I tried not to seem too odd to your neighbors. I just can't believe what the Earth was like. So gentle and peaceful, and so vast. They say O'Neill's simulated gravity is just like on Earth but honestly, I think it's different. I walked around at night and looked up at the sky and I just couldn't believe that there was nothing between me and outer space. Like naked outer space. I'll never be able to describe what that's like to anyone. I hope the terraforming projects can achieve something like Earth is like in your time. Oh so, I didn't believe mind displacement was true, an internet conspiracy theory. But on your phone, I did do some searching and I'm pretty sure you are the first mind displacement. Seriously. I remember seeing the first mind displacement. I can't remember when it went online but I couldn't find it in your phone. In other words, it hasn't been made yet. You are the true first. You should go online and tell people because the ones who come later won't be able to tell the world before you. It's up to you. You're not part of the online records that I can remember, so I guess you won't make a video about it. But you should check online and when someone posts a video saying they are mind displaced, you can contact them. It may take a while. You and I are at the tail end and the tail beginning. Most of them happen around 2120 or about that time. Like, I think I'm the last mind displaced because no one else has claimed to be one for years. It's up to you. I may not say I was. And really, I could have used your phone to upload a video of you saying that you're the first mind displaced. The very first video of a mind displaced is actually where the mind from the future uses the body from the past to do that. And I think it may have messed with the past person's life but I don't remember. I think that person might have lost her job or something but I don't remember for sure. Anyway, I didn't want to do that to you. You have my writing here though. So if you ever choose you could always credit me for writing these pages. Anyway, it doesn't matter if you do or don't. People in my time are kind of over it. Mind displacement is old news. But I should, you know, give you the basics because there is nothing online about it yet, in your time. When I say, mind displacement, you're probably wondering what the hell I'm talking about. I know in your time you use three dimensions, but in my time we use other dimensions, 
and some exist in time, and others exist outside of time. Anyway, it was all an accident, and no one knows who did it, and no one can figure out how to do it, like, go to another time on purpose and choose who goes. And online, as part of the conspiracy, people have their ideas about who did it and how to find how to do it. Does that make sense? She comes to the end of the words on that page. Guilt burns in her heart, and she takes a seat. Why should I feel guilty? I did the right thing. Maybe it isn't guilt exactly. Maybe it's the toll it takes whether it was the right thing to do or not. After resting her eyes a minute, she turns to the next page. I'm sorry to say, but your internet sucks. It's like a ghost town with no AI around. It's not alive. I think I'm suffering from deprivation, like I've been put in isolation. I'm so used to being at least partly online all the time, I feel like half my brain is anesthetized. I feel like I'm stuck in a bottle. I think I would lose it if I didn't know I will go back. I can't believe you do everything through that phone. I saw some videos on your phone of people using this typewriter, and that's pretty impressive, how some people learn to hit the buttons so fast. They make it look so natural. It took me an hour of internet searching on your phone just to learn that the typewriter gets power from that wall socket. It's so weird how much power it uses. It buzzes the whole time and actually gets warm. It's like using a rocket engine to heat a meal. Okay, I already know it's rude to go on about how much my technology is better than yours. Turning to the next page she reads. Oh I'm sorry, some people you know came by today and I think I weirded them out. I wasn't going to answer the door but they kept knocking and there were five of them outside so I got scared, so I went to the door. I just kept saying I'm sorry I just don't feel well I will be okay later, please just let me rest. They stayed out there a long time. I think one of them was your father and he was really upset. I'm sorry I just didn't know what else to do. It stressed me out. Misty lays the pages on the table. I feel a little hungry. I should eat if I can. She goes to the pantry and takes out the things she needs to make a meal. She plugs her phone in, finds a playlist, and turns the volume up. While food heats on the stove she stands with her eyes closed. I can think things through over time. I'm not going to come to grips with what happened all at once. Misty is the youngest person ever elected to the tribal council. Her tribe is poorer than the rich tribes, a lot poorer. At the time that she joins, outside groups are pressuring them more and more. The members are in disagreement about what offers to accept or reject. Misty Josiah has a clearness of vision that more or less wins everyone over. I know what we need to do. The corporation John and John is nearing bankruptcy. We need to buy it. In the United States, corporations have more rights than most white citizens. John and John as a group of product providers does not have much to offer. But they are going down in flames, and they have legal tools acquired over the decades that we can use to gain sovereignty. We can get John and John and turn it into an investments corporation. One member asks, What about this Ed Cruz talking about suing us? Misty says, Ed Cruz thinks of us as a small side project at this time. We will delay him with promises of talks and in the meantime, 
the John and John Company will start leasing the reservation land all along the north. It will build housing, storefronts, warehouses. A member says, With what money? Misty says, The money we get from selling off all the John and John assets. I can see you worried because we don't have a lot of money, but we will have enough to position ourselves for a fortune that will come our way. I can prove to you. A member says, How can you prove it? She talks the council into getting into cars and following her north. They drive across the reservation until the only road that will continue to take them north is a dirt road obscured by clumps of grass. They drive for a couple of more miles then get out and walk. I told you all to wear your walking shoes. She calls back to them as she leads them up a mountainside. When the last of them, panting, joins the group at the top of the bluff, she points north. A council member asks, What is it? Evidence of construction stands out in the rocky wilderness. Yellow cranes stick up along the line that follows the border. Large trucks kick up dust, and though they look tiny from this distance, it's obvious something major is in the works. Misty says, It's a mega shipping and transportation project that will join Seattle to New York. A member says, Well, that's a few miles from the reservation. What does it have to do with us? Misty insists. What you see down there means that companies are going to open up next to the reservation. Towns are going to open up next to the reservation. Schools, roads, and houses are going to be built right next to the reservation. A lot of outsiders are going to look at our land and see dollar signs. A member asks, Why haven't we heard of this? Misty says, Because many know, Ed Cruz knows, that that project will either push us off this land or, if we can secure greater legal rights, put us in a sweet position to acquire wealth for our nation. What do all the rich tribes have that the poor tribes do not have? A member says, Location. Misty shakes her fist. Yes. And we are in the best and worst situation depending on what we do to prepare before the wave. As a sovereign nation, the U.S. will betray us. But as a corporation, it will grant us special rights and privileges. A member says, You act like you can see the future. Misty says, Yes. In a sense, I can. And that's why I know I will eventually win every single one of you over. A woman who has known Misty all her life says, What has gotten into you, Misty Josiah? Misty says, I will tell you, after you follow my plan. I need you to follow my plan first, for at least a year. Many of the council, besides Misty, met with each other, discussed, researched, and argued but in a couple of weeks they all agreed to follow her plan. What did they have to lose? As isolated as the reservation has been for nearly 200 years, most of their tribe members don't live on the reservation anymore. They can't afford to. A year later when the members are coming to her asking for direction and many members are moving back to the reservation to work construction, Misty takes a drive. On the way, she tunes into NPR. The conservative-dominated Supreme Court has struck another blow against the fight to end climate change. Protesters form crowds outside the Supreme Court building. Here is what one protester has to say. Most people want to fight climate change. Most people want a future for their children. 
The Supreme Court could have helped save our planet but for the past 20 years they have been an enemy of our future. Misty drives up onto Ed's property. She finds him outside, taking apart a transmission and placing the parts on a grease-caked folding table. She asks him, Are you still talking about buying that gas station just outside the res? He says, I save money when I can, but you know how it is. She says, Yeah. Have you ever converted a car to an EV? He gives her a funny look. What? We aren't in Hollywood and no. She says, Listen. The council wants to invest in EV conversion. You know Montanans need their cars and fuel stations are dropping oil. Converting a car to EV is a lot cheaper than buying a new car. He asks, What do you want me to do? She says, The council wants to give you a loan to buy the station, but the catch is you need to specialize in EV conversion. He says, Why? Misty says, Because it's going to make you shit loads of money. Ed laughs quizzically. What's gotten into you? You never seemed like someone who wanted a lot of money. Misty says, I don't. But I do want to see our friends get a chance. I also have a sneaking feeling you could be a rising entrepreneur if given a chance. He says, aren't I already? She looks at the six cars in stages of disrepair parked in his yard. Yes, you are. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.